Good morning. Our reading is going to come from 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in McNash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of, of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines <clears throat> and was at Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gigal. <clears throat> and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. Like the sand on the seashore in multitude, they came up and encamped in Michmash, to the east of uh, Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs <clears throat> and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, still at Gagal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gagal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gagal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the, of the Lord your God, and with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal, and re the rest of the people went uh, up from Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the, the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with him with them stayed at Gibeah of Benjamin, and the, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. <clears throat> and the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah in the land of Shual, 
Another company turned toward Bethorn, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to uh, sharpen his plowshare, his matok, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the matoks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found on, in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to pass of Michmash. Thanks. Hey, I want to apologize for the popping in the sound system. We get that anytime it gets moist. <laughs> anytime there's, there's humidity in the air, it starts popping. So um, that's not just you. <laughs> that's all of us. We're all hearing that. We want to invite our children to uh, Children's Church. Your uh, teacher will meet you there. And um, just a place to go get the word of God in a more uh, age-appropriate setting. So with that, let's uh, open in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the word of the Lord. Uh, Lord, um, it is great to sing your name and to know, Lord, that we have been set free from the chains of sin, the chains of the fear of death, and the promise of hell because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the salvation that you bring us. And all we have to do is trust you, believe that that's enough, that that's sufficient for our salvation. What a powerful name it is that can do that in the human heart. Um, Father, we want to pray for um, the, the, or thank you, I guess, for the snow and for the rain that we have. I was chatting with a few people this morning and, and seeing the Tehachapi's just covered in snow. Lord, all I can think of is that's going to be ours in the, in the summer when we need it. So thank you for the mercy that you've sent us with this, uh, this rain and this snow that we have. And um, it's uh, not the end of the the drought, but Lord, it is a, uh, certainly a, a pump of the brakes, and we're, we're grateful. We don't want to pass that up, so thank you for that. And uh, Father, I want to pray for uh, Daniel Holmquist, our previous pastor, and his uh, continued recovery. Thank you that he's home and he's mending. Lord, would you continue to um, uh, cause the headaches to go away, and, and uh, pray that the staples would be uh, secure and in place, and that he would be back on his feet and leading uh, Calvary EV Free um, in the worship and the praise of you soon and have something to brag about how God has provided for him and his, his pain and his, his suffering. Father, we want to pray for Melissa Bohannon, whose surgery will be coming up in um, just a few days. Uh, Father, would you be with the doctors to guide their hands and, and make the valve replacement uh, go as smoothly as possible. We pray that this would help Melissa's heart to uh, heal and, and restore her strength and help her to be able to, um, to walk again with you in a, a way that is um, filled with more energy than she has now. So thank you for the mercy that you've given her so far, and we pray for continued healing. And uh, Lord, as uh, Ebony Williams is uh, inching closer to labor, um, knocking at the door even now, Lord, we pray that you would uh, give her and Tommy strength and uh, patience as, uh, Lord, the, the child will come when the child is ready to come, and, and when the time is right, you will provide 
And so give them safe travels to the hospital at the right moment. And uh, we pray that the delivery would go smoothly and that we would get to celebrate the new Williams child with them. Uh, so have mercy on them and, and uh, help uh, Ebony deliver safely, we pray. Uh, Lord, we now turn to your word and we, we know that, uh, Lord, this is something that is written by the Holy Spirit through human hands, that um, human experience has written these down under the inspiration of the Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you come and cause us to hear and to understand what you're saying to us this morning? Uh, may your word be proclaimed with clarity, we pray. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Amen. So, want to welcome our Zoomers. We've got some extra people. I, was, I popped into the, the live stream just to see that the sound was okay. And so, hi, everybody. Um, welcome this morning. Um, um, so at the declaration of the War of 1812, the U.S. Navy was pretty young and pretty small. The Navy had only been in existence about 18 years, and our whole fleet consisted of 22 heavy frigates, not a very large fleet at all. But at the beginning of the war, the British fleet was actually in our waters pretty stern. There were a lot of ships. I think if I remember right, it was somewhere around 60 ships were in our waters. So you can understand that the, the government wanted to protect those assets. We had to be able to employ them well, so we didn't want to risk them. So one of the first uh, orders issued in the War of 1812 was to take a squadron of five ships off the coast of uh, New York and patrol. And uh, they thought that hopefully these five fast, uh, heavy frigates would be sufficient to either deter or take out the British. Well, one of those was the USS Constitution, and that ship was docked at Chesapeake Bay. And so when it was time, they refit, they, they brought on new sailors, they got supplies, and they set sail to meet up with their fleet uh, off the coast of New York. Um, on the way, they came across a, a squadron of five ships from the British. And once uh, Captain Isaac Hull recognized this fleet was British, he turned and ran. There's no way that one heavy frigate was going to face down those, that many ships. And so as they're running, the crew is throwing everything they've got overboard, spare water, all the, the uh, things that they had just put on the ship, they're throwing it off, and they took off running. Well, the Constitution made it into Boston Harbor. And once it was in Boston Harbor, the captain, Captain Hall, realized that if he stuck around too long, he would most likely get orders to stay because he'd be protected. We'd, we'd have one of our ships protected. So in order to avoid that order, he took on supplies quickly and then took off and set sail. Within about a day or two, he ran into, or he, he uh, uh, raised another ship off the coast of Nova, Nova Scotia. It was um, the HMS Grayer, uh, a light frigate, um, slightly smaller, but that didn't mean that they were at a disadvantage. The lighter frigates could actually turn faster and maneuver a little quicker. Well, the, the, the Gray Air raised a handful of uh, British ensigns, those are the little flags, and what that was was an invitation to fight. Are you ready for war? Well, the captain of the Constitution answered in kind and raised a bunch of uh, American um, pennants and headed in. So you get these two big ancient warships sailing towards each other, ready to fight. Well, from a distance, the Gray Air started firing and the shells, the cannonballs, were bouncing off the hull because this was, this was Yankee-built solid oak, and the, the cannonballs couldn't penetrate it. One of the crew members yelled out, yay, she's Ironsides, and that's why the USS Constitution is called Old Ironsides. 
So the battle was joined. It took about 15 minutes until the, the Constitution was close enough that they felt they could start uh, firing. It's called pistol shot, about 50 yards away from each other. So at pistol shot, they start firing. And they tore up the Gruyere, the Gruyere, just decimated, ruined the hall, took out the fore and the mainsail, and then about 15 minutes in, they ran into each other. Now, as soon as the ships collided, the captain ordered boarders to cross over and take the Gruyere. And they did. After about another 15 minutes of hand-to-hand fighting, the gray air fired a cannon leeward, which means away from the battle. One cannon, and that was a signal we surrender. So the Americans took the British captive, brought him over to the Constitution, and the gray air was in such bad shape, all they could do was burn it and sink it. Now, all of that happened. There were a lot of firsts in this battle. This was when um, the Constitution, which, by the way, still sails today, the same ship, um, that ship, still sailing, picked up the name Ironsides because the British couldn't penetrate it. The very first American Marine casualty was in that battle. As the borders were getting ready to cross, a sharpshooter took out a captain in the, in the, Royal, in the uh, U.S. Marines. Um, this was the first real heavy engagement of the War of 1812. So there were a lot of firsts in that. All of that happened because Captain Hull was smart enough to know if he stuck around and received orders, he'd still be stuck in Boston Harbor. That's not how you win a war. You win a war by going out and engaging your enemy. So he didn't exactly disobey orders, but he certainly avoided them. He got out before he could receive them. He knew what was coming, and so he disobeyed. And in war, there are times when the right answer is to disobey orders, or in this case, avoid them. That's not the case in this story today. As a matter of fact, in this story today, it's the exact opposite because Saul is not going to uh, follow the orders that he's been given. He's in big trouble, and this is the turning point. So you remember in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, this is about the coming of the kingdom. The first part of the book was all about what we learned in, in Judges, which is there was no king in Israel, and so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Well, we're finally to that transition point. We now have a king in Israel. So this is it, right? This is it. We're, we're in good shape. Well, no, because this isn't the right king yet. And what we're going to see is Saul is going to do what is right in his own eyes too. But we get the promise of this king who will lead well and rightly. Um, so let's go ahead and take a look. Right off the bat, the first sentence, I hope you caught this, Saul lived for one year and then became king and he reigned for two years. Does that sound right? Because the way we met Saul was he and his servant were out looking for lost donkeys. That doesn't sound like a one-year-old going and doing that. So the, the text has this question of what does that mean? And so um, most of the modern translations will translate it, Saul was uh, 30 years old and he reigned for 40 years. And they get that because the Greek translation translates it that way, includes the, 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 uh, his age. Also in the book of Acts in chapter 13, it says, they asked for a king, and God gave him Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So there's, there's this other way of reading the story that supplies the numbers. So the theory is, the scroll this was written on was damaged. And so the scribes, when they were translating it, they would, they would never put any words in that they were not in the original text. And since they couldn't read them, they just omitted them. And so it says one and two. Um, that doesn't sound quite right to me. It's, why is it that the only two words that were damaged were the ordinal numbers 30 and 40? It, it's just, it's possible, maybe it happened that way, 
But when I was researching this, I found that there's another alternative answer that preserves the text the way it is and makes sense. That it, it, you can read it one, uh, one and two and, and it'd be okay. So the idea here is if you translate this literally, what it says is Saul was a son of a year. Oh, I'm sorry, son of a year was Saul when he reigned and two years when he reigned over Israel. So the idea is that phrase son of a year usually means that that's one year old. And so what it means is Saul was the son of a year. He was the, a son for one year. What's that talking about? Well, what it could mean is that son of a year is not his age, but how long he began to reign. So the idea is that he was a son of a year describing the time period from when uh, Samuel secretly anointed him in chapter 10 to this point. It was about a year. So he was a son of a year. He was a year in his reign when he got to this point, and he reigned two years over Israel. So what does the reign of two years then mean? Well, what we see last week, what we saw last week was he began to act like a king. He brought the military victory. What we're going to see this week is he messed up and God said, your kingdom will not continue. So the two-year thought is from this point to when David is anointed king, that, which is in chapter 16. So that's about a two-year period. And that's, that's the idea here. And actually, the reason I think this makes more sense to just take it at what it says, but understand that, that son of a year differently, is because that's exactly what's happening in this chapter. Is Saul's kingdom has now been announced. It's over. It'll take two years for it to happen, but it's been announced now. So I think it fits better that way. Um, the problem, though, if I can throw some water on my own interpretation, is son of a year always, except for in this place, would mean one-year-old. And it never applies to a human being. It's always the offering that they bring. Bring a lamb that's one-year-old. Bring a lamb that is son of a year. So that's the kind of, you know, almost makes it, but it's still kind of a stretch. However it fits together, what we know is this is the beginning of the story. Saul's reign is measured in some way. It, he will not reign forever. Something is going to happen. So he's the son of a year, and he reigns two years. And so what happens? Well, Saul chose 3,000 men, and 2,000 were with him in Michmash and uh, the hill country, and 1,000 were with his son Jer um, um, Jonathan. And Jonathan goes and defeats the, um, the garrison that was at uh, Geba. Now, back in chapter 10, chapter 11, Samuel told Saul, go there and, and wait for me. And we were told there was a garrison of Philistines there. Well, now we've, we've seen what's happened. Jonathan has gone and defeated that garrison. It's a garrison. It's not a whole army. So it's a smaller group. And the word gets out. And so Saul blows the trumpet and he says, let the Hebrews hear. Now that phrase Hebrews is kind of odd. We, we think of it as Hebrews, but the way the word Hebrews instead of Israel is used in the Old Testament, more often than not, is on the lips of their enemies as kind of derisive, kind of a, an insult. So the thought here is that when um, Saul says, let the Hebrews hear, it's kind of like saying, yeah, they think they're making fun of us, but who, who beat them? So, all right, all you losers, look who won. That's the idea. So there's a sense of almost gloating in it. And so he calls the people out, and they join him at Gilgal. So that's, that's the, the setup. They have bloodied the nose of the Philistines. They're ready for uh, another success, just like they had last chapter. But... Verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 
and 60,000 horsemen and troops like the sands of the seashore in multitude. Yikes. So the Philistines are here, and they are in big numbers. Now, remember previously we said that that term thousand, it might be the, the actual number of people, but it can also be the term for a military unit, which might not be a thousand people. Um, this number seems very high for uh, the time and the, and the place and stuff, so it could be that there were 300 units named the thousands and that the, the actual number of people is less, but it doesn't matter. Even if it is a, a lesser number, it, they're still way outnumbering Saul's army. Saul's army was 3,000 people. The Philistines are much worse, so here's what's going on. Saul is there. He's ready. He's got his troops together. And he's, he's been told, wait seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. So he, he's going to do what he's told. He was warned, wait for Samuel, seven days. And so day one, how are we doing? What's, the, what's our troop count? Well, sir, we're up to about 2,000, 2,500. Uh, the, the troops are massing. Well, what's it look like across the way? Wow, the Philistines, they're already up to around 300,000 or 30,000. There's a lot of troops over there. What do they got? Well, they got, they got chariots, and they've got all their weapons, and they're beginning to mass. We've been told to wait seven days, so let's wait. So day three, what's the situation? Well, sir, the Philistines, they're encamped. They're rested. They're eating. They're, fence, they're, they're uh, sharpening their weapons. They're practicing. Their chariots are out racing. They're, they're getting ready for war. What's the situation for us? Well, we lost about 600 troops yesterday. They went home. Okay, but you know what? God told us to wait seven days. Five days. How are we doing? So we lost another couple of hundred. And the, and the Philistines, they've already begun to break up their camps and reorganize. It looks like they're about to attack. The seventh day, the sun comes up. Saul says, Samuel's going to be here today, any day now. Send out some runners and, and be ready to escort him into the camp. Uh, let's get the sacrifice ready. As soon as he shows up, sacrifice and we're going into battle because we can't afford to bleed off any more troops. Yes, sir, we're ready. High noon comes. Any word of Samuel? No, sir, the runners have not reported anything. Uh, okay. Sun starts going down. What's the word? No vision. We, we don't see Samuel anyway. He, he's nowhere around. How are we doing? Lord, sir, we're down. I mean, like, we're down to, like, seven, 800 troops. We are really in bad shape. And the Philistines, they haven't budged. They're, they're, they're practicing. They're ready for war. Eighth day, the morning rises. Surely Samuel would have been here by now. Um, imagine being Saul at that point. Analyze your tactical situation. There is an army facing you who greatly outnumbers you greatly, vastly outnumbers you. And Saul stands and faces them. He's not turning and running, he's facing them. They have superior weapons. That little coda at the end of the chapter, did you catch that about, they didn't have uh, uh, blacksmiths in Israel. The, the Philistines had so oppressed Israel that they had removed that technology from them, wouldn't let them develop that technology. So if you wanted your iron instrument sharpened, you took them to the Philistines. And the way it ends, it says that there was no sword or, or spear in all of Israel except for with, with Saul. So not only are they vastly outnumbered, technologically, the, the implements of war, they've got iron and we've got maybe brass or, or bronze. This is you know, towards the end of the Bronze Age. They're going to kill us. They're just going to wipe us out with those. Even worse, 
they've got chariots. The chariot of the day was the battle tank. You couldn't defend against those things. They moved too quick. They were, they were very strong. The horses would run you over. They were, they were outgunned and outnumbered. But to Saul's credit, he didn't turn and flee. I might have. I might have been tempted to. That's pretty frightening. He stood his ground. And so he is ready to engage. He's like, okay, we're, we're in a bad shape, but we've got to go. Samuel's not here. It's time. Bring me the sacrifice. I'm not going into battle without seeking God's favor. So you see, Saul is a very religious man, too. He's not going to do this without going and trying to appease God first. And so he brings the offering, and he offers the offering, and he's like, okay, we've got everything we're going to get. It's time to engage. And you can just see him as he's beginning to turn towards his troops. Samuel shows up. And I can just hear Saul going, where were you five minutes ago? (laughs) You were supposed to be here yesterday. Samuel asks him, what have you done? That, that little phrase is loaded. It, it is not a phrase of, um, I'm so glad you did that. The first time we hear something even like that is in the Garden of Eden. After uh, Adam throws Eve under the bus for eating the fruit, which you know he ate too, God says, what is this that you've done? Well, the woman you gave me. God asked, not because he didn't know, he was looking for a confession out of him. The next time you hear it is in chapter 4. After Cain has killed his brother, God says, what have you done? Abimelech, when he meets uh, Abraham, Abraham lies and says, oh, Sarah's my sister. And this curse falls on Abimelech, and Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, what have you done? You get the idea that this question is not a ringing endorsement for Saul? I just can't imagine Saul going, oh my gosh, what have I done? I think he's, he's probably standing there going, what do you mean, what have I done? I did everything right. We're, we're standing fast. As a matter of fact, it says, his answer, he says, um, I uh, forced myself. That's actually probably not the best way to translate that word. That word that's translated forced is more often translated, st- I, I restrained myself. So the idea is maybe he is saying, I was, I was afraid like all the other rest of the troops. I was ready to run, but I restrained myself. I stood fast. I stood here, and I'm not going into battle without God, so I, res- I, I restrained myself, and I offered the sacrifice because I want to win this battle. I want to go into this, this battle well-armed and ready to, to win. What have you done? I did what was necessary. Isn't that what a good leader does? A good leader makes those clear tough decisions, takes action, does what's necessary, and he's ready to engage with 600 troops, a massive army that big. What have you done? That was exactly the wrong answer. As soon as he finished offering, and he's asked that, and he explains, Samuel says, that was exactly the wrong thing to do. That was exactly the wrong thing to do. You have done foolishly. And what is the beginning of wisdom? Foolishly, being a fool is the opposite of being wise. What is the beginning of wisdom? Fear God. So even though Saul is a very religious man and offers the sacrifice, he wants to seek God's favor, he's a fool. What, what a, a sting. I can't imagine that. That went down well for him. You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. God had told him, probably through Samuel, wait seven days, and then I'll come. 
It was a two-part command, wait seven days and wait for me. What Saul did was he did half obedience. I waited seven days and you didn't come, so I took over. But that wasn't the full command. The full command was wait seven days and I will come. Half obedience is not obedience. It's disobedience. And so the rest of the, 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 uh, Samuel's words is, if you had done this, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. So what's the problem? Let's diagnose Samuel or Saul here. What did he do wrong? Where did he go wrong in this? And the reason I'm doing this is the reason I'm looking to Saul and saying, what did he do wrong is because he's made out of the same dust we are. We're not immune from making these kinds of mistakes, doing half obedience and saying, I got it. I'm good. I, I listened. I did what I was told to do. The answer, how we figure out what he did wrong, is we look at what God's cure for it is. You acted foolishly. You took the sacrifice into your own hands. You, you were going to do it yourself. Where did that go wrong? God has sought a man after his own heart. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is seeking God's own heart. Saul didn't do that. Saul was seeking something else. He was looking for security. He was, he was essentially, remember the whole thing started, we want a king to rule over us so we'll be like the nations. They got that. Saul is just like the king of the nations. The kings and the nations would trot their gods out, appease their gods before they went into battle because their gods were very fickle. And they might like them and they might not. They might be on their side. They might be against them. So we've got to make our God happy and we're going to go out and we're going to you know, sacrifice before we go into battle. Saul's doing the exact same thing. He's, he's a king just like the nations. God's answer to that is, I'm seeking a man after my own heart. I want somebody whose heart is ringing with mine, who's as, whose heart is in alignment with mine. Now, Saul had something at his disposal that he should have recognized. Remember, I said the book starts under the umbrella of the book of Judges. And last chapter, you remember Samuel with his, his speech, his inauguration speech, he brought up the book of Judges. He said, God led us into the land. And he, he mentioned all these different judges who, who had ruled over the nation. One of them was Jerubbabel. Jerubbabel is another name for Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon from Judges? Gideon is about to go out and fight. He's been called to uh, wage war against the army of the Midianites, the Malachites, and the people of the east. And when he assembles his, his army, it's too big. God says there's too many people. If, if you go to battle with that many people, you're going to think you did it on your own. And so the first thing that Gideon does is he says, anybody who is afraid and trembling, go home. So 22,000 people left him. Left him with 10,000 people. And God looks, and, he go, and I'm sure Gideon's like, well, that must be right, right? And God, nope, nope, too many. And so he says, here's how we're going to sort out the rest. Go down to, to the water, and whoever drinks by cupping the water in their hands, take those. Because it's kind of, the other guys, I guess, lap the water like a dog. And he winds up with 300, and God goes, now we can do it. Now we can win. Now we're down to a manageable number. And he did. They went, and they destroyed the enemies. So had Saul looked and said, my heart is after God's own heart, he would remember his history, and he'd go, it worked for Gideon, it can work for me. I've got 600. Gideon only had 300, and he won. 
God can do this. He's, it's possible for him to do it. So he's, he's not trusting in what God has done. He's not looking to what God has done for him before. His heart is not in line with God's own heart. He's thinking, you know, from a worldly perspective, he's thinking right. He's, he's analyzing his tactical situation. He's doing all the steps that he needs to engage in the battle properly. But that's not what we called a number of weeks ago supernatural thinking. It's not including God in the equation. It's omitting God. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is his heart. Saul's heart was not in line with God. He desires military success and thought he could get it through military means. But what God is seeking for is someone whose heart is after his own, who desires the same kind of things that God desires, who desires God's glory. And so this is a problem that we can have. Our hearts can be drawn in that way. It's easy to forget these things. Now, we have tremendous advantage over Saul. We're made of the same dust, but in the kingdom of God, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have been given a new heart. A heart of stone has been removed. A heart of flesh has been put in its place. We have the Holy Spirit engraving on our heart God's law, inclining us towards obedience. God is working to make our heart more like his. We have the promise that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He is working in us to head us in a, a direction of obedience. But we're not there yet. We won't be there until the resurrection when our flesh and our bodies are made new and sin is completely put away from us. So in that meantime, we have the inclination towards obedience and we have the flesh that stumbles and is leading us away from that too. So that's why we can look to Saul and go, what did he do wrong and how can we avoid that? Because we have all the benefits of being born again in Jesus Christ to contend with. So we have this tremendous blessing. We have... God's history. Saul could look back at the book of Judges and say, well, look, God has been faithful. He has done this over and over again. We have all of redemptive history. We see God's great and precious promises spelled out through his Bible repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly fulfilled. He has been faithful to those promises over and over and over again. So our hearts can go, I'll remember his promises. I'll look to what he's promised me. I'll look and say, look at every single time he fulfilled his promise. Exactly. He took care of his people. Can I do that? And we'll push. We'll nudge our heart towards obedience, towards God's heart in these things. We have the history. According to Colossians 2, we have the circumcision of Christ, which is a new heart. And so we have the heart of Christ. We have that same kind of approach to those things. We have something Saul didn't have in the same way we have it. We have a tremendous example. We have a, the, the example above all examples. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, Christ has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ humbled himself, he faced enemies, and he did not turn away from what God had told him to do. He died and he rose again. He saved us from our sins and he left us an example. There's, there's a book by Dick Keens, I can't remember the name of it, something to do with heroes, but he talks about the role of heroes in people's lives. And why is it that we're told to look back to the, the heroes of the faith, like in, in Hebrews 11? What the heroes in our lives do is they demonstrate those things that we desire the most. 
they're our heroes because they do the good things that we want. And so when we see that, when we see this person putting it in action, it draws our hearts to say, I want to be like that. That's how I want to behave. And so they're this role model for us, and they draw us in positive directions if you pick the right heroes. So with Jesus, not only is he our savior, not only has he died to cancel our sin, he's also stood as a real human being, an actual physical human being, with a reasonable mind, a reasonable human soul, a reasonable desire, just like we are in all ways except for sin. And we go, that's what I want to be like. That's where my heart is tuned. That's where I want to go. So we have Jesus as our savior and as our example. We have his great and precious promises. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around us who are experiencing those very same things in ways that we can't possibly. And so we draw from their strength and their experience too. And we incline our hearts towards God. One of the ways you, you do this is by curating your heart, paying attention to what goes into it. One of the things I've said for a number of years is you will believe what you listen to the most of. Whatever you hear the most of, that's what you're going to believe. So I was listening to a, a talk by Tim Keller from 2013. He was talking about early in his, his career as a pastor in uh, Virginia. And he said that he had a lot of uh, young college students, um, freshmen, would come to him. And they would say, um, I'm really having big doubts about Christianity. I am really struggling with this. And, and I'm doubting it, and you know, I read the Bible, and it just doesn't sound real to me. It sounds very foreign, and I pray, and it feels like my prayers aren't leaving the room, and, and I'm just really struggling with my faith. And what Pastor Keller said was his question was, was penetrating. He'd look at him and go, who are you sleeping with? I was like, what? <laughs> he said that was almost always the problem. Where their heart went, that is where their mind would go. Their heart went towards disobedience and sexual matters, and so their heart went away from the Lord. So that was that picture of curate your heart. Put into your heart what it is that you want to, to uh, uh, believe in. What do you want to trust in? Where do you want to go? And so what we have to do is we have to fill our hearts, fill our minds with the things of God, because you will only ever do what you want to do. You, that, that is where you will go every time. What did Saul do? Saul did exactly what he wanted to do. It would have been nice had, had Samuel shown up, but I want to go fight this battle. I want to win this battle. I want to protect Israel. I want to lead them. And his heart wasn't, I want to glorify God. And so he did what he wanted to do. And that's a danger for us as we can do what we want to do. So you need to train your heart to want to do what's right. And you have this huge conspiracy on your side. The Holy Spirit is working in you. God has given you his word. He's given people. He's given examples. He's given history to you. You can feed all of those things into your heart and train your heart to be inclined in the right direction. So you will do what you want to do. Because obeying halfway is not obeying. We want to be obey, but you can't obey by just stealing up your fists and going, I'm going to do it right this time because I'm just going to try harder. You'll fail if you're not paying attention to your heart. So with Christianity, doctrine is supremely important. It is, it is extremely important. If you get doctrine mixed up, you're going to have a wrong God. You're going to have a bad view of who God is. You're going to misunderstand Jesus Christ. You're going to misunderstand what he's calling you to. But it's not sufficient if it just resides in your head. You have to sink that understanding into your heart. It's got to get down to your heart so that you want to do those things, so you want to head in that direction. 
And that's what Saul didn't do. So what did God say? I, your heart is not after my heart. I'm going to seek a man who's, who's after my own heart. I'm going to go find him and put him in charge. Now, I've got tremendously great news for you. Our king is never going to make that mistake. Our king, his heart is totally in line with God. His heart has never deserted God, has never been selfish, uh, looking for his own vainglory. He became obedient to the point of death on the cross. So our king is going to lead us the right way. The troops, those of us hiding in cisterns and tombs and, and caves, if you don't want to abandon the camp, then you need to make your heart in tune with your king's heart. That, that's the lesson that, that um, Samuel is teaching us in this. This is the warning that he's given us about how to not fail God like that, how to not wander away. So ask yourself, who are you sleeping with? And even if you're sexually pure in this, did you notice that throughout the Old Testament, God compares idolatry and worship of false gods to adultery? So who are you sleeping with is a question that goes beyond sexual purity to heart purity. What things are you treasuring? What are you filling your mind with? Now, secular entertainment is okay, or it can be okay. Just like when you eat a good meal, it's okay to have a dessert. But if your entire diet is dessert, you're going to be miserable. John and I were talking this morning. We had way too much dessert last night at the Valentine's thing, and both of us sat up kind of late with upset stomachs. If that's your entire diet, you're going to be obese, you're going to have diabetes, you're probably going to have bad teeth, you're going to have numerous other physical ailments. You don't want to survive on that. The same way secular entertainment can be okay. Not all of it is, but it can be okay in a correct balance. You want to make sure that you're feeding your heart with the good food first. Eat your vegetables. Just do it. So that's why on the, on the tel table out there, we've got those Bible reading plans. Read through the Bible in a year. It's not magic. Somehow 365 days of Bible will, will magically transform you. It is you're curating your heart. You're feeding yourself with solid food. You're hearing regularly the promises of God. You're seeing it fulfilled, yes and amen, in Jesus Christ. And you're training your heart in that direction. So this is how we avoid Saul's mistake. Because we're really, honestly, you're not better than Saul except by the, the blood and the, um, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So let's head in those directions. Curate your hearts, my friends. Pay attention to what you're consuming the most of because it will make you follow it. It will feed you in that direction and your heart will go that way. So the story ends rather abruptly. It just, Saul tells Samuel, or the other way around, Samuel tells Saul, uh, you have done foolishly. God has taken the kingdom away from you. He sought somebody after his own heart. And then uh, Samuel arose and went to Gilgal, and the rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. It just ends. <laughs> that makes you realize this was the main point. What Saul, Samuel said was the main point, because now the author's just kind of wrapping things up real quick. And then he said Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed at Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and raiders came out from the camp. I, I, I don't know what they mean by raiders, but I picture uh, like the old western, like four or five horsemen come charging out of the camp and go racing off in this direction and some in that direction. And they go, what they were doing is they were going and stealing supplies. They're raiders. So they were going and hitting um, Israel's villages or their farms and stealing supplies and bringing them back. 
That means the Philistine army is ramping up more and more. They're, they're fed, they're rested, they're ready to go. And so that's, that's where we're left. That's where we're left with the cliffhanger is you've got this massive, well-equipped, well-fed, well-rested enemy army arrayed against this little tiny group of, um, of Israelites who are just hanging on. How's your king treating you now? Um, let's see how this goes. We have to wait till next week. Then we'll get the next part of the story next week. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, would you please tend our hearts? Lord, I pray that uh, Holy Spirit, as I've seen you do in my life, occasionally just ping me and go, is that what's best at this moment? Is this really what you want to be doing right now? And Lord, I pray that you would cause me to listen to you more quickly and that you would cause all of us to listen to you more quickly. Lord, would you train us to feed our hearts with the things of God, to feast on your word, to feast on our fellowship, to feast on the Lord's Supper and baptism and the other things that you've given us to to feed our faith and to draw us closer to you. Lord, you have given us a new heart in Christ. You have given us a new heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you cause us to incline that heart towards obedience and to lean into you and to trust you. Even when the enemy is arrayed against us, and they're superior, they're outnumbered, Lord, help us to remember that Jesus defeated that entire army, that their weapons have been broken, and that they can't stand against us. And Lord, we'll only see and believe that way if we're trusting in you. So help us to remember your great and precious promises, to lean on those, and to believe that you care for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and be our king that we would have no more Saul's, that we wouldn't be Saul's in our own lives, but, Lord, that the king who is truly after God's own heart, Jesus Christ our Lord, would come. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.